a lot of the kids who have these sensory needs um, in the classroom, a lot of them don't show other challenges where it makes it obvious that they need support and they might, they get mislabeled a lot. They can be mislabeled as the shy kid, as a kid who doesn't pay attention, as a kid who just won't listen and keeps touching things when I say not to touch things. It's really, really easy to just see them as those behaviors. But when we can get curious and see what need that they're filling, a lot of the time it has to do with sensory needs. We are Megan and Alyssa, former teachers and founders of Pop PD, a peer learning platform for K-12 educators. On the Extracurricular Podcast, we're interviewing the most passionate, forward-thinking educators to uncover tangible strategies you can use in your classroom right away. Laura Pedix is a neurodiverse-affirming pediatric occupational therapist who specializes in sensory processing skills for neurodivergent individuals. She's a parent to a neurodivergent daughter and CEO of the OT Butterfly, where she educates parents through her podcast, social media, one-to-one parent coaching, and other digital resources on how sensory processing can have a direct impact on learning and behavior. Laura lives in Southern California with her husband and daughter and is a huge Disneyland fan, visiting at least once a month, if not more, where she found a way to mix both business and pleasure out of each and every trip. Laura is an absolute expert when it comes to understanding sensory strategies, and she has a way of explaining exactly how students and adults may feel when going through a period of dysregulation. If you've ever had a student who avoided schoolwork, had a complete meltdown, or just seemed really anxious, it could be something off in their sensory regulation. Laura helps us to step into our role as sensory detective to understand what could be going on with a student's behavior so we can help them find the right supports and advocate for them as well. Is it a behavior problem or is it a sensory need? You'll find out in this episode. If you've ever been required to attend a PD that had nothing to do with your subject area or that was taught by someone who hasn't stepped foot in a classroom, you understand the mission behind our peer learning platform, Pop PD. Both the Extracurricular Podcast and That Teacher Podcast are brought to you by the team at PopPD. Our mission is to empower teachers to connect with one another around sharing teaching strategies, tips, tricks, and ideas you actually want, creating a learning experience as dynamic as you are. We know you need access to ongoing, relevant resources to support your teaching career, and it's our mission to help you feel fully supported as a modern educator. Check out our beta platform now at poppd.co and join the waiting list to be one of the first to try the new version of our platform when it's released by visiting poppd.co slash waiting list. We have our friend Laura on the extracurricular podcast. Laura is the infamous OT (laughs) butterfly on Instagram. She is the go-to for all sensory needs. And I know as a parent, I go to her account quite often to figure out what to do with my lovely little children. So Laura, welcome to the Extracurricular Podcast. Thank you for having me, both of you. It's so good to get to have this conversation with you, although it's hard to separate the personal friendship stuff that we have because we got to hang out in San Diego. So I'm excited to get to talk to you here. We're going there next week. we've, We've met Laura in person. We have had lunch in person. We can't say that of every podcast guest. So this is really nice. Yeah. Yes. Very good to be here. Uh, we're really glad you're here. And I think I know that you usually typically on your Instagram account really speak to parents. You serve parents of of children who have sensory needs. 
this podcast, we're mostly going to have teacher listeners, but I think it's really important for teachers to understand this as well, because we likely have students in our classroom. I mean, 100% of the time, right? Guaranteed. Yeah. So let us know, you're an occupational therapist, maybe even start with the basics of like, what is an occupational therapist and how did you become interested in that field? That is a perfect question because depending on actually, I'm sure this will probably come out later, but it happens to be right now at the date of recording Occupational Therapy Month in the United States. So this is when we are shouting loud and proud even more than normal about what OT is. So the field of occupational therapy, the word occupation in occupational therapy does not mean job, even though that is like the number one misunderstood thing and is why I didn't consider this profession earlier because I thought it meant either helping people get back to the workforce, like after an injury, or helping them find jobs or helping them with like the stress of jobs, right? But when the field was created in 1917, the word occupation uh, just referred to things that actually occupy your time. So we are therapists who help people get back to the things, either gain skills or regain skills that they have lost through illness or injury the skills that are necessary to participate in things that are meaningful and purposeful to their daily life. And that sounds really broad because it is, but it's also very dependent on each person. Like what is meaningful and purposeful to my life might not even be a thing to someone who is living, you know, in another country or even in another state and in another time of their life. So occupational therapists work with people from infancy all the way to the end of life and just working on all of the skills that they need to do things in their daily life, which includes things at home, things in the community, things in the work field or at school, which we're going to focus on today. It's interesting because as a teacher, I, um, in my school, we had occupational therapists in every building, but my go-to was to call them when a kid had a handwriting problem. That was really the only time I ever would call up the OT and say, can you help me? I can't read this kid's handwriting. But the definition is so much more broad than that, right? It is more broad and it definitely, you know, within – we all have specialties and within each setting. So, yeah, within the school setting, one of the top referrals for OT is probably related to fine motor and handwriting. And I think that one, at least when we're talking about pediatric and OTs who work with kids – This is what fine motor and handwriting skills is probably one of the first things that people think about. And so it's one of the things that as OTs, we're like, yes, we do that, but we're more than the handwriting teacher. And so we try to expand people's awareness of all of the wonderful things that OT can do. Love it. And how did you, then how did you decide to go into this when you were, like, what struck you about it? So I was actually... I had graduated from UC San Diego um, with a bachelor's in neuropsychology, and I was doing research study. I was uh, a project coordinator for um, the VA hospital there working with uh, adults with schizophrenia and bipolar, and I was going to apply. I was in the middle of applying for PhD programs, and like I had a mid-application crisis where I was like, I actually hate doing research, (laughs) and so- my principal investigator, the PIs, what you call them at the time, was like, 
I don't think you want to be in this field or like apply to grad school PhD programs if you don't like research. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I, I And I had to sit with him and he talked me through it. And his wife, he had mentioned several times, my wife is an OT. She's an occupational therapist. I think you'd be great at that. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, Because he was in psychology, so I thought it was the same thing. And I brushed it off until I was like, okay, Colin keeps mentioning OT. And I looked it up and I was like, oh. And back then, that was in – was that 2011 or 2012? It kept saying that like this field is is booming with the older generation and needing more OTs in that field, helping people come back from like strokes and hip replacements and all of that stuff. And then also with the neurodivergent population and more and more kids needing support with that. And so they're like, this is the field to get into now. And then I was like, you only need two years and it's like healthcare and I get to work with the people and not do research, I'm in. And so from then on, it was just OT was my new thing. And it happened to work its way into your personal life. Can you walk us through kind of how OT ended up helping you with your daughter? Yeah. So I got my license and started practicing probably, what was it? like? a year and a half before she was born. And I thought I was going to have the textbook child because I knew everything that there was to know about childhood development. And I was like, if I do this and this and this, she's not going to have sensory issues. She's not going to be neurodivergent. Like that was a very ignorant, naive way to think about it, right? That I could, that I could prevent something from happening. And I realized quickly early on that uh, you cannot program babies and children to come out to be the textbook kids, right? And even the OT ended up with a daughter who could very, very much benefit from OT. And so my daughter early on was having very, very intense, big, big meltdowns, like 90 minute long, multiple times a day, biting her finger, all of this stuff where I was like, this feels not your typical two-year-old tantrum. and yeah. So from then, then on, I started noticing more sensory stuff, emotional regulation stuff. And I started to wear my OT hat at home a little bit more. And turns out she benefits from a lot of things that I already knew as an OT. So that's where we're at now. It's really, I only bring that up because I know it is your personal life, but you share a lot online about your experiences in working with her. And she's really become sort of this, uh, we, we call, we were joking before. She's like, she should, she's a total celebrity, but I love watching the way that you interact with her because it helps me as a parent to see exactly what this looks like down to like the nuance of how you talk to her about certain things. And I wonder if you, if you were to think back on kind of your journey with her and how things have gone with her, what are some of the things that you feel like went really right? Or what are some of the things that you felt like were very challenging or moments that you maybe not like wish you could change, but kind of looking back were, were really your biggest challenge points? Yeah. So this is where it's like a double-edged sword. 
where I am anxious too. I have anxiety and my daughter has anxiety. So the pro of that is I get how her brain works and I can really see that not from a textbook or a list of behaviors, but truly just experiencing like I get why certain things are hard for her and I know how it can feel like you're freaking out out of nowhere, but it's really been bubbling. Like I I truly, truly understand that. Also, the negative side to that is sometimes it is re- it, it feeds off of me. And it's really hard to, one, know what I know as an OT and, two, be the anxious person that I am because I think – or I, I've gotten so much better at fine-tuning this now that I am in therapy. But before, it was like uh, I would almost – not will it to happen, but you know, like I was so overly prepared way too far in advance. And I think she was feeding off of my energy. And I think some of the times that may have hindered her ability to really practice certain things or to really try something without me, you know, making sure it was going to go perfect for her. So finding that balance uh, is something that I have made so much progress in, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like an, an art to that. It sounds like being responsive to her ended up being kind of the biggest lesson there, right? And really kind of um, having having your toolkit, right? Having the strategies, having that, you know, deep awareness that you have as an expert, but also, you know, having that in your back pocket and having her be at the forefront and really 100%. using that to inform how you're interacting with her. That's exactly right. Being way more responsive and maybe keeping some up. I, I, because I'm such an anxious person, I am overly prepared, but instead of putting things into play, I'm like, okay, well, if she does this, then I'm going to go with plan A. And if she does this, I'm going to do plan B, but I didn't have to do it in advance. So that's what allowed me to be responsive. Like you said, in the back pocket, I'm like, oh, she did that thing. I'm going to give her this accommodation or do this. And, and now, now it feels less like a, like a formula. And so like transactional and it's, it feels more natural, but we practicing that skill as mom, with a little hint of OT has been the hardest thing to fine tune, but I feel the most confident now than I was before. So if you could give every teacher a little bit of that OT knowledge, let's back up a little bit and talk about what is sensory processing disorder? What might it look like in the classroom if we don't have that OT background? Like what are we kind of looking for? And then we'll get into some of the ways that we can respond to that or maybe even prevent if we really understand what it is. So can you just give us a little bit of a background on sensory processing? Yeah. So to understand what a an atypical sensory processing brain is like, we have to understand what a neurotypical sensory processing brain is like. So the act of sensory processing is something that we're doing all the time. Like right now in this instant, every single person is processing sensory information from the environment and within their body. So right now I've got some bright lights in front of me. I can smell my essential oils on the side. I can hear like the hum of my computer fan. If I think about all of those things, I can label them. I can identify them. I can tune into them and really understand what they are. But because I know that I am in this conversation with you, my brain is able to focus on the words, on the things that I need to say next, on seeing your visual cues of your facial expression, and it can kind of filter those things out. It knows they're there, but I don't have to really tune into them. Now, if the sound of my computer fan instead of that sound, if it was the sound of like a fire alarm or if it was the sound of my kid crying or the sound of someone knocking on the door, 
my brain would say, that that sounds important. Let's shift our focus and pay attention to that. And even if I was trying to fight that off, I might be distracted and having a really hard time staying focused on this, right? Aside from those sensations, I also have bodily sensations. I have, I can feel my stomach is kind of warm from the coffee. Um, it's not empty because I, I had breakfast, but if I, if I was empty, I, I would have like a rumble in my tummy. All of that would send signals to my brain and it would notice it, but it would filter most of it out to let me do the thing that my body needs to do right now, which is have a conversation with you. Now, a so if we were in the classroom, you would need to focus on the teacher and what they're saying, right? Teacher's up at the front, teaching a math lesson, got to pay attention. I'm going to, my neurotypical sensory processing brain can ignore the footsteps in the hallway. It can ignore the bright fluorescent lights. It can ignore the neighbor sitting next to me who's unzipping his backpack. It can ignore the clutter of paper that I see on my other neighbor's desk because I, I, I know it's there, but I can focus on the teacher. Now, a brain who has sensory processing challenges or inefficiencies, sensory processing disorder, their brain, the process that it takes in the sensory information, the label that it places on what the sensory information is, and the intensity that it registers it. The brain can have, the nervous system can have a hiccup at any one of those points. So it can either, you know, make the bright lights feel too bright or it can make the sounds feel too loud, or it can mislabel a sound as labeling it as dangerous when it's not really dangerous. So at any one of those markers in the process, it can have a hiccup or all of them. But then what comes out is the way that your body responds to it because of what the how the brain is processing that information. So if we go back to that example, a child who has sensory processing disorder they might not be able to ignore the sound of their neighbor zipping up their backpack and they have to look at it. And then, oh, I just missed what my teacher said. Oh, and there's that clutter over there. I wonder what's on that piece of paper. Oh, I've seen that before. Oh, back to the teacher. What were they saying? Right? Very quick. And to the outside eye, it's just, hey, pay attention. Look forward. You're not, you're not listening. You're, you're, and then it just it is very easy to miss because these are all internal things that happen. And the last thing I'll say is a lot of kids who have sensory needs, it can, and by the way, I'm giving examples of having a hard time filtering things out, but there are some kids who have more of a, they are their brain is taking in not enough information from the environment. So these are the ones who are touching everything and seeking and moving, right? But what I was going to say was a lot of the kids who have these sensory needs in the classroom, a lot of them don't show other challenges where it makes it obvious that they need support and, and and they might they get mislabeled a lot. They can be mislabeled as the shy kid, as a kid who doesn't pay attention, as a kid who just won't listen and keeps touching things when I say not to touch things. It's really, really easy to just see them as those behaviors. But when we can get curious and see what need they're that they're filling, a lot of the time it has to do with sensory needs. And Every single person uses some sort of sensory strategy to regulate. If you get up in the morning and wash your face with cold water or if you twirl your hair or if you click a pen or if you tap your foot or if you bite your nails, those are sensory strategies. That's me. <laughs> okay, let's stick with this. So you, what you were really describing there was really the, the what you call like the sensory sensitive situation, right? Yeah. You also mentioned a difference between sensory processing disorder and sensory challenges or inefficiencies. So is that just kind of like a scale of how you would describe it? 
Yeah, I usually say those three terms because sensory processing disorder can can be confusing when people hear it because so from the research from the science we can all agree sensory processing disorder a brain that processes sensory information in a different way than neurotypical brains it definitely exists we know that it exists however technically speaking in the the book that has all of the codes and the diagnostic codes that clinicians use to diagnose things like autism ADHD anxiety SPD doesn't have its own section. It doesn't have its own page. Right now it's listed like sensory processing symptoms and sensory sensitivities and sensory seeking is listed under those big umbrella things like anxiety, autism, ADHD, fetal alcohol spectrum, all of those things. It's listed as a sign, but it does not have its own diagnostic code yet. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, I, I just end up saying sensory processing challenges or inefficiencies. Also, it captures the fact that everybody has sensory quirks, and just because you have a sensory quirk and a need without the diagnosis doesn't mean you don't deserve being supported. So we can all benefit from sensory supports. Oh, I love that. Okay, so to stick with sensory sensitivities, you mentioned that a couple of behaviors might what it might look like or what we might identify is they're distracted, they're unfocused, they may be the shy kid. And this is mostly internal. I like how you how you said that as well. So what are some other like behaviors we might see with the sensory sensitive type? It seems like it's more of like a shutdown, very much more internal focused behavior. Yeah. So you might see kids shut down. A lot of sensory sensitive kids can mask their behaviors because a lot of them also tend to be like people pleasers and they really want to make their teachers happy and their peers happy. So so some of the behaviors might be more obvious to mom and dad at home um, with that after school meltdown, which many kids, even neurotypical kids have, but sensory sensitive kids tend to um, really, really hold that in. But there are many kids who are sensory sensitive who can't hold it in. And instead of just shutting down in the classroom, you might see them avoiding a lot of activities. So sometimes if you see a kid running away from something, we'll say, what are they avoiding? Maybe the group, the circle time is too loud for them. Maybe it's music time and it's too loud and they don't know how to cover their ears or that's not enough to avoid the stimulation of the sound. Some kids have a hard time with with crafts and they might have big behaviors and throwing things if it's a sticky craft. Instead of saying, I don't like the way this feels on my skin, they crumple up the paper and throw the glue stick away and hide under the table. And that could very much well be related to tactile or touch sensitivity. There's so many little behaviors that we have to decode. But when we do, we can see they, the kids, the students have been telling us all along what they need. It's just not always so straightforward. I, I like the examples that you give there too, because, you know, a lot of people, not that, you know, math and English and, you know, all the kind of core subjects aren't fun, but those examples that you gave just then are music time, arts and crafts time, you know, places where we would think kids would be most excited to engage. But if you have that sensory sensitivity, that could be the most challenging part of your day. So I, I think that's really useful for you to bring that awareness of it really doesn't matter what the scenario is. It matters what those sensory inputs are. And how that's Absolutely. affecting the child. And so I think that's a really helpful way for teachers to be able to think about, you know, 
paying attention yeah. at all of those moments. Yeah. And not the just other- the kind of instruction I'm at the front and you need to listen right. to me. Like, oh, they don't like math, so they're running away, yeah. right? So even the, even on the playground, right? So there's a lot of – so with sensory sensitivity, it's – they really dislike a lot of the imposed sensory input, which means they have no control over it. So when you're on a playground and kids are running so fast and they bump into you, that's imposed touch. Or sand gets like brushed by you or – you know, the smell of someone's lunch in the cafeteria, all of those things. And the way that I I talk about sensory profiles is I like to talk about them as like cups, right? So sensory sensitive kids have a small sensory cup and it can get overflown very easily. And if you imagine a cup that's overflowing, that would signify a dysregulated nervous system or a meltdown or whatever big behavior you're noticing. And so sometimes a sensory sensitive kid, it's not always so clear cut like, oh, there was the sound of the toilet flushing and then they cried, so it must be the toilet flushing. It can accumulate. Like they could be fine all morning. And then in the afternoon, the one time the glue got on their finger, that was like the biggest reaction. And it wasn't just about the glue. It was about you know the sand that got in their shoes. It was about that it was rained and it got on their sleeves. It was about the kid who sneezed so loud that it got in their – that you know it startled them. And it can really, really add up and accumulate throughout the day. And then the one thing that I, I feel like fits in this part right here while we're talking about it is that when your nervous system is dysregulated from either too much of the sensory input, because we're talking about sensory sensitivity, or also not enough if you have a nervous system that needs more, you are not going to have full access of your executive functioning skills and your all of your higher level skills that you really need to access in the classroom. Like that's why you're there, right? To learn all of those things and participate. And you do not get full access of those if your nervous system is not regulated. So that's a really, really big part of why sensory supports need to be part of the classroom. Okay. I want to dig in some more to that. I do first want to bring it to the big kids though. We always try to like, because we have listeners from K-12 what, what could this look like in a high schooler? Because we know adults have sensory sensitivities. I know I do. How does this come out with the bigger kids? So I specialize most in kids in elementary school. So I haven't worked specifically with kids in junior high and high school, but as an like I, I like as an adult, right? If you are still sensory sensitive, there are still sounds and everyday things in the classroom that probably still overwhelm your nervous system. Probably in that environment for um, you know a high schooler, they may have more executive functioning skills to mask and hold it in and keep it together so that they don't get in trouble. But I also know that there are just less overall supports and less accommodations and less teachers who are willing to accommodate because as they get closer to college and the real world, there's a lot of people who believe that well, why should we accommodate that? Like, why why do they need that? Like, he 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 should be able to to do X, Y, and Z. And so, with less supports, I would imagine it it relies so much more on the individual and the student. And so, knowing adults now who are in the workforce who are sensory sensitive, and you know your nervous system by this point, maybe through trial and error, because you didn't get the early on teaching like we would like for our kids to have. You, you tailor your life around it. You know that you can't schedule a meeting at 
7 a.m. because you're a slow to warm up person and you can't and you know that you have to switch out the light bulbs in your office because the fluorescent white lights make your heart race and make it really hard for you to focus on work. So you learn what works for you as you get older and it just becomes more on your responsibility to fulfill those accommodations, unfortunately, unless we can get to a place where we can advocate more for the community and other places to provide them for us. So they have to advocate for themselves. I think that that's a great thing. It sounds yeah. like being transparent. You suggest being transparent even at a very young age, but being transparent with high schoolers so that when they get into the workforce, they can recognize, oh, you know what? That, that That's actually a sensory thing. And so I need to figure out how I'm going to deal with that stimulus yeah. and, and go on with my day. Yeah. And you know, at the very least, I, I would hope that when you self-advocate to your boss, to your coworker, to your high school teacher to your college teacher, I would really hope that they can provide the accommodations necessary. At the very least, if they are not willing to and they can't, either you make a shift in how you know you take it into your own hands or at the very, very, very least, my hope is that these kids and these adults and people that know my that need is not being met. So it is not my fault that I am not able to produce XYZ to this level that they are expecting. I am not a bad person. I'm not a I'm I don't suck at my job. I'm not a bad student. This is my needs are not being met. And I just don't want it to affect their self-esteem. You know, and obviously would love for all those things to be met, but at the very core of it, if if they could just know this is the best I can do because this is how my brain works and my needs are not being met. So it is not, it's not my fault. I like what you share there. I think it's a, it applies to so many different, you know, parts of, of teaching of how there's this kind of foundational layer of care and support and comfort at any, at any age level, any grade level, right. Where students need to feel, you know, you need to kind of establish that rapport and feeling of support so they can feel safe and comfortable in the classroom to enable them to learn. And then once you start getting into those instructional situations, really then paying attention to you know, inputs and outputs, like how, what, what are they experiencing? How are they reacting? Really kind of noticing that. And then over time, it sounds like from what you described there, you know, with younger students, per, you know, being proactive and, and trying to, you know, provide some kind of interventions or alternative options, and then really kind of talking to and educating students about those shifts so that they can yeah. do that, you know, advocating for themselves going forward. It kind of sounds like a, a process over time that, based on how you described it. Yes, and I am more and more hopeful that there's more education now than there was when we were kids, obviously. So I'm just excited to see how this trends and hopefully more of our kids these days, even neurotypical kids. I hope more people just in general are aware that people learn differently, like differently, not not in a worse way, not, you know, I'm not superior because I learned that way, just different. And so that that's what I hold on to, hopeful that their learning environments and their work environments in the future become a little bit more accommodating and inclusive to those needs. Yeah. What would you say uh, as a teacher, I'm, I've got a student in my class who seems to, I think we're still talking about sensory sensitivities and I do want to dive into sensory seeking, but I have a kid in my class who I'm noticing is, is having some of these behaviors I know as a teacher, I would get the phone call or the text from the parent at home a lot in the mornings. We had a rough morning. Hmm. We're, you know, he's coming into school off. And as a parent, I know I send my kid in off sometimes because he had a meltdown about his shoe wasn't tied or whatever. Mm -hmm. As we're looking at those, 
behaviors in the classroom, what are some things we can start to do to try to help the student learn and focus? I don't even know if focus is the word, but like get what they need in order to feel successful in the classroom. Yeah. Well, so if we are talking about sensory sensitivity, you can make as as small, like minor adjustments as possible, like just switching where they sit in the class, right? Are they sitting next to a sensory seeker who is constantly tapping and humming? Are they sitting next to the door where it's open and then the next door's classroom is always starting off with music class? So, so fine-tuning where they are in the classroom might help. The other part of it for, for any – just to apply this to any sensory profile, whether it's sensory seeking or sensory sensitivity – where I think it's important for parent for parents and teachers to understand is when we see a child's behavior, whatever the behavior is, not paying attention, not listening, touching something, disrupting, all of that stuff, that happens because they don't have the proper skills to match the demands of the environment, right? So a child's academic skills, sensory processing skills, executive functioning skills are at a certain level. The demand of the environment and the demand of the task of what the teacher is asking or just just existing in the environment the demand of it is way too far up and there's a large gap between what the child is capable of what their nervous system is capable of and what the environment is demanding of that nervous system and their brain functioning so to decrease that gap we want to build the skills in the child but that's going to come from OT and work at home and stuff on the side maybe the teacher will help there but it's a long term effect the other place to decrease the gap is by decreasing the demand of the environment for that child, which is never going to be perfect, right, for a teacher, which is what I want to call out because you've, you're not going to just have one kid with sensory needs. And you're not, and even if you have multiple, they're not going to have all of the same needs. They're, it's going to be different. So I for sure want to, to call that out, that that's really hard. But just thinking of things like that and thinking of each task or time in the day and saying, okay, you know what, this kid – you know, tends to have meltdowns in the morning because of clothes. Mom has shared that with me. He comes in and the first hour and a half, he's still kind of like wired from that meltdown. I know that he doesn't do well with sounds and he doesn't do well with attention. So I'm not, I know I'm not going to call on him during like calendar time or whatever their first thing is. I know he's going to probably join the group a little later because he's slower to move and he's still, you know, adjusting. I'm not, I'm going to be flexible about that and not call him out and say like, hurry up, right? I'm going to just mentally note that. Or I know he's going to need a movement break early on and like that this part of the class is really loud. So I'm going to ask him to, you know, deliver a message to the office in the morning so he can kind of get that fresh air and the break and then come back. So it's just like being aware of that child's needs, again, coming from parents communicating or if they have an IEP or anything like that. And then some of it is providing those changes, like I said, switching where he sits ask coming up with a task for him to take. Some of it is just mentally as a teacher. I know he had a hard morning. Uh, I'm going to try to let that go for now. I'm going to accommodate him like mentally just by what I expect of him and knowing that. That's like a really good place to start. Hmm. What about sensory? Why don't you dive into a few of the, like tell us a little bit more about the other sensory profiles since we've really focused on the sensitive piece. Yeah. So if I said sensory sensitive kids are kids with a small sensory cup and they can like get easily overwhelmed, like every sensory input is a drop in their cup and then it overflows and they have a meltdown. 
In the same respect, a large sensory cup, if it's empty, is also what we would say is dysregulated. So these kids, their nervous system does not register enough of the sensory input from the environment in order for them to have a balanced, regulated nervous system. So they need more of it. So there's two kinds of big sensory cups. There's a sensory seeker. So they will actively seek out these. You cannot miss a sensory seeker. Like you will know a sensory seeker when you see one. Constantly rocking or fidgeting has got to touch everything in sight. Maybe they're always, always, always chewing something, something in their mouth. They will not just ever walk somewhere. They've got to stomp, skip, walk on the curb, hop, all of it. They've, they just love a lot of sensation, right? There's other kids who still are need more sensory information from the environment, but they don't actively seek it out. They're just kind of unaware of it. And these are the kids who look withdrawn and isolated and they prefer sedentary. So they're not very active. They actually really don't like moving, even though moving will help alert them and help them focus. So both of those have large sensory cups. Sensory seekers, I say, have a hole in their cup because just the more you give them, the more – like it just seems to be never enough, right? And those are the kids, I would say, who get in trouble the most in the classrooms because I can see how it's being very distracting and the teacher has no option but to call them out. So if that's the case, that's why, again, it's really important to have these conversations with the kids as well and let them know how your brain works and why it needs so much – movement and that it's not your fault. And we want to work with you and the teacher to find a way to support that. And so some of the ways that can look in the classroom is being very flexible with where they sit, right? Being very, very intentional about how many, like if you need this kid to sit still at a table and a chair in a standard chair and table to like, right, you've got to pick like the times for the spelling test. I've got to be able to have to read what they're writing. So they have to sit still to write. But other times when they're using math manipulatives or if it's circle time or if it's a group project time, can they stand? Can they lay on their belly? Can they rock back and forth? Can you give them intermittent breaks and allow them to get up and take a lap outside or deliver something to the teacher? There's so many ways to like infuse movement and the breaks that these kids need throughout their day. It just takes being a little bit creative. And again, when you see the increase in the behavior, thinking about something about the demand of the environment is too high right now. How can I decrease it as best as you can? I think you've given us so much great information there. Just to kind of wrap it up before we get into our our lightning round, let's say I'm a teacher and I'm thinking, I, I listen to this episode and I'm like, yes, I have either a sensory sensitive kid or a sensory seeker in my class. Definitely. How do I begin to advocate for that student first to the school itself so that I can help get them the services they need or to the parent to let them know like, hey, you might want to check this out, these services or or even these strategies out. And then third, to the other students, because I think there must be a, a layer of like, oh, I'm, I'm sending, you know, Susie to the office to run her lap. But like, yeah. can we be transparent with the other kids about some people have different needs? We all have yeah. different needs. We all have different needs. That's right. So I think the first step, this is something that I've, I'm just learning because I, again, I've never worked in the school. There's a school, there's, there's OTs that work in the school. There's OTs that work in a private clinic. I've always been a private clinic OT. When I talk to school-based OTs or teachers, there's always so much red tape and politics and hierarchies of who you need to talk to first. So in terms of who to alert first, but 
as a parent, I would wish, I would hope that the teacher would bring it to the parents need the parents first, but I don't know what's required in terms of if the parent, if the teacher's like, I think we need to get them assessed by OT. I don't know the chain of, of, of who they need to contact first, but let's say they're ready to talk to the parent, how a teacher would bring this up to a parent, how I would like to hear it is I would love an email that says, and I would say, I would love an email earlier on rather than like, "Mm, they did it today, but let me wait next week. Let me wait next week. And then now it's the middle of the year and the parents hearing it for the first time, right? That's when I talk to parents one-on-one and and they're like, apparently it's been going on the whole year, but the teacher was thinking it would get better. So I would much rather as a parent hear it early on and say, hey, I'm noticing your daughter seems to have a harder time around this time and this time of the day. I can't tell exactly what's going on, but here's what's happening. Every time, you know, it's time to pull out math book, she is getting up from her seat and running around the classroom. When we talk to parents, I would love if if the way that we describe things is as objective as possible and less on the like, she's distracting other students. It's just, just focus it on her. Her body is getting up and moving. I'm not sure what need this is serving for her. Have you seen this at home? Do you have any suggestions? Would you like to work together for this? Kind of just opening it up as that collaborative process rather than I'm seeing your daughter do this. It's really disruptive. Can you please do something about it? Or can you talk about it at home? Because if you're seeing it in the classroom as a teacher, you're going to have to be doing something about it too. It can't just be all on the parent, right? Just like the parent could say it can't always be on the teacher. It's definitely got to be from a both sides thing. And then so what you said about how to talk about other kids. In an ideal world, I would love if every OT at each school or if a school could hire an OT, if they could do like a one day like in-service training for teachers to do like a sensory detectives where every teacher can understand what different sensory profiles look like and just very easy ways to adapt the environment to do little tiny changes that are easy and like, you know, top three or five things to notice within that classroom. Here's the here's the red button that that you push to call the OT if you see these things. Until then, try these, you know, strategies. But then with that, when you introduce any sort of sensory strategy, a tool, letting a kid run to the office, and then someone's like, well, how come she gets to stand up for her test and I don't? That is really why we need to educate on the, the, uh, on the different ways that brains learn, right? Just like my prescription glasses would not be helpful for you, a fidget tool that I give this kid would not be helpful for that kid. So the way that I introduce it is here are some sensory, these are called sensory tools. They are tools to help kids learn the way that they need to learn. Everybody is free to explore a different way, a different tool, but when it becomes a distraction, it's no longer a tool for you. So most kids are excited. Oh, I want to use the yoga ball or I want to use that fidget. And then if they don't really need it, they do become distracted and it becomes a toy. That is not the best tool for you. That is that. That is why he needs it more than you do. So if you really bring it to their attention that these are to help them learn and focus, then you can better weed out and say, that doesn't look like the right tool for you. I need to take that back and we'll, we can explore something else. That's not the right tool for you. I think kids can definitely understand that for themselves and for one another. So those suggestions are all really great. Okay. Before we dive into the lightning round, as you were just mentioning, 
kind of as a teacher, I'm wanting to to talk with, I want to communicate with the parents about this, or I want to know more about the, the, the red button I can hit if I'm seeing this, this, or this. Do you have any specific resources you would point teachers to? We'll link to them in the show notes, but anything kind of off the top of your head? Well, I did a free training on Pop PD, so that's, that's one of them. <laughs> that's what I was getting at. I should have. That's what you're trying times. to pull out of me. No, I really don't. I, the more that I talk to teachers, the more that I realize there there really is not enough sensory processing like education out there. And I also still am like it still boggles my mind. I th- was it you who told me this, or another teacher was like, you don't even get to pick what professional development class you take. No, like it's don't. just. District, they just because as OTs, we we pick and choose, but like you know, we pay for it. But we're like, oh, I want to learn more about the vestibular, so I'm going to sign up for that, and that fulfills my units. Like I did not know that like the entire school or the entire district like gets that that blows my mind. Yeah, so us, we we are mind blown by that every day. (laughs) And so it makes sense why a teacher would not want to spend their extra time or resources on this. But I feel like. Starting there with that free training and then advocating with your principal or like the district and say like, we need more. Like this is how many times this year that I had to call up the OT. We can save time by having this training up front. Can you please provide this to us? And then, and then there's, there's more like, um, that then maybe there's more of a conversation to be had there. Yeah. Right. Great. All right, Megan, you want to dive in with those lightning round questions? Yes, let's do it. All right. First question, the lightning round. What strategy is kind of the favorite amongst, you know, you mostly work with parents. Like what is their kind of top thing that they like to employ with their kids? Yeah. So if you know a kid who has a very big meltdown, you'll know that they either say things that they don't mean, or sometimes they're not answering anything you're saying at all. That's because their logic and their language centers are essentially offline as they're in this like fight or flight meltdown mode. So sometimes you'll like try to give them something and they'll throw it back at you or you'll go in for a hug and then they push you away, but then they want to hug back. And there's just like, no, like what, what is it that you need? And so knowing that kids tend to be one, aggressive at this time and two, unable to express what they actually need. I came up with a strategy where like, you can't see me right now, but I hold two of my hands out, like palms facing out, like as if I'm asking for two high fives. And I would like show one hand closer to them. And I would say, you know, do you feel like you need a hug? And I would like push my right hand forward. And then I would push my left hand forward and say, or do you need space? Which one do you want? And then I would let them like slap, hit, punch, whatever it is. I'm giving them permission to get that thing that they need out. And they've also now been able to non-verbally tell me what they need. Ideally, you practice this at a neutral time so they know what you're doing. But in the moment, I've seen this be very helpful for kids. And it doesn't have to be hug or a space. It could be like, you know, do you feel like you need to go for a walk outside or do you want to go hide under your desk? Like whatever you agree are the two options that you can't tell, two choices, hold up your hand and allow them to select that option. And that helps a lot of parents and teachers. That's great. I am putting that one in my back pocket with my four-year-old. Yes. That's a really yes. good one. Oh, <laughs> we're going to start working. A, we're going to start practicing it tonight. That's a good age. And then pulling it back out of the pocket definitely, when, when needed. Definitely <laughs> that a lot between three and four, for sure. Excellent. 
That's great. That's great. All right. So uh, next lightning round question. What is the funniest thing that's happened to you when working with a kid? We work with kids, right? You're bound to yeah. have some of those kind of silly, lighthearted moments, yeah. something that makes oh, you laugh. So what's the, a good one for you? <laughs> the one that sticks with me, it's kind of, it's, it's funny, but it's also just like, oh, it just touches my heart so much. It was something a kid said when we were working in the clinic and we were talking about something about his parents going to work and his mom and dad being busy and all of that thing, all of those things. And then we were swinging more and playing around. And he goes, so so what do you do for work? And I was like, oh, you sweet thing. <laughs> like, so cute. Is, I was like, you know, I help kids. Like, I didn't even say this is work. I was like, <laughs> I help kids learn how to handle big feelings. And go. he's like, oh, I, I, I'm here for that. I was like, yep, that's exactly what I'm doing. Like, oh, you sweet, sweet <laughs> oh thing. Oh, my gosh. My favorite yeah. thing about that phrasing is how it sounds like an adult at a cocktail party. Yeah. So what do you do yes. for work? What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. Like, we were, yeah. He's like, so what is it that you do for work? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I wonder. I think that's a testament. The kid was having so much fun with you. He's like, this isn't oh. a job for her. Yeah. We're having such a great time. She just came oh, to hang out with me. I get, I get kids who ask if we, I, if we live there, where do we sleep in the clinic? Like they think like yeah. that's the house, like. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a really fun job. I love it. Awesome. All right. And our last one is, um, what is your kind of favorite game or activity for helping kids feel more regulated, right? So something like a brain break or again, quick thing teachers could kind of do to help with that in the classroom. Yeah. I am a huge fan recently of, um, kind of like guided meditation apps. So right now I use one called Calm for myself, but they have like a kid's section that my daughter really loves as well. And it's an easy thing to put on, turn the lights down, have everyone kind of like have their eyes closed for three to five minutes. It's a really good way to reset and calm. I would say also, especially, you know, like after lunchtime or after recess, when you're coming in from a huge transition of a lot of movement, a lot of stuff and excitement and need to settle down. This is a really, really a a good one to do. They have like three to five minute ones. Oh, that's wonderful. Especially as, you know, kind of already, already done for you. You don't have to come up with the meditation. Exactly. You have to come up with the push, push a, a button. Nice, a nice break for everyone, back. right? Like exactly. a nice yeah. The teacher should do it too. Yeah. yeah. That sounds, that sounds great. Laura, this was wonderful. We appreciate all the advice you shared. And if anybody listening wants more advice, wants to hear more of these strategies, these regulation strategies, Laura is the queen of analogies and helping you to understand how all this works by providing a great example or analogy or demo video. Her Instagram account is the place to go. You're going to start bookmarking things right away. Uh, but Laura, if you could just share kind of, yeah, where where they can find you, where they can connect with you, where's the best place I already mentioned Instagram, but even other than that. Yeah. Instagram is definitely where I'm at most of the time. It is at the OT Butterfly. And I also have a podcast called the Sensory Wise Solutions Podcast. It is like you say, I talk to parents, but I I teach people who don't understand sensory processing, who have a child or a neurodivergent person in their life that they want to understand better or support better. So all of my content on there will be helpful. And I have several episodes on like classroom specific stuff too that uh, might be helpful for teachers listening. Great. And I'll also link to that free training that you have on Pop PD that can help teachers get started with understanding all of this in just 10 minutes, which is a really nice way mm-hmm. to just dive in. And if you want to hear the behind the scenes of how Laura started sharing her thought leadership in the online space, you can head over to That Teacher Podcast, which we're about to record next, to give you the behind the scenes look at all of that. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Megan. 
If you had a light bulb moment during this episode or thought of an idea to share, join us inside our podcast community to tell us your thoughts on both the extracurricular and that teacher podcast. We have a space for you to comment and chat with one another about each episode. We'll also pop in with a fun question every Sunday night, like, what's your most embarrassing teaching moment? We believe that sharing our experiences as educators is what keeps us moving, learning, and experiencing more of a sense of connection. You can join us inside the community to access all the podcast episodes, bonus content, and discussion prompts at poppd.co slash podcast.